This podcast is brought to you by The Great Courses. The Great Courses puts the world's greatest professors at your fingertips via audio or video, streaming or discs. Enjoy over 500 courses in science, math, history, and more without the pressure of schedules, homework, or exams. Now, for a limited time, you can get our highly rated series, Mysteries of Modern Physics, at an amazing 80% off the regular price. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash scientific to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash scientific. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on July 7th, 2014. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode, Rowan Atkinson is hilarious and you know he's Mr. Bean. And there have actually been studies that have looked at Mr. Bean comedy and they've examined people's brain responses as watching him do his very physical humor. And you can actually see the humor being processed in the brain. That's Scott Weems. He's a cognitive neuroscientist and the author of the book Ha with an exclamation point. The Science of When We Laugh and Why. He's based in Little Rock, Arkansas, but was passing through New York a few months back and visited Scientific American, where we sat down for a serious conversation about the science of what's funny. Scott, I went to a screening of this new movie, Pompeii, Mm -hmm. which shows the entire city of Pompeii being destroyed by this volcano, you know, as really happened, obviously. Um, The audience was laughing hysterically. These giant flaming boulders are coming down and just, you know, just wiping out people and everybody is laughing their butts off. You know, why, why is something like that? Well, you have to see this movie because it's almost a parody of, of, uh, the ancient Rome movie format because it's 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 so bad it's enjoyable in some ways but so but that was it the the meta experience made it even funnier because people were then laughing at how people were laughing at the horror that was being portrayed on screen so why would something like that happen why would we find that funny <laughs> um, yeah so I would say a little bit I guess depends on the movie too but that's very common for people to laugh at, at tragic movies and dramatic movies. Um, and it comes down to the issue of when we see movies like that, we don't just have a single emotional experience. It's uh, it, Freud talked about catharsis, which is the cleansing of, of emotions. It's actually the opposite of that. It's called cathexis, which is the experiencing of both, uh, I guess, depending on the movie, you'd have tragedy, drama, and then there might just be the surreal experience of thinking, this is a very crazy sentimental movie. What's going on? You realize you're in a movie. And there's there's been research of people who have uh, who are horror movie fans and who love going to horror movies. And uh, Eduardo Andrade, uh, a psychologist, wanted to know why do people like going to these movies and why do they laugh frequently during the scary times? And he found that these people who love these movies, what they do is they show both the horror and the suspense and the uh, the excitement, engagement that we all feel, but they also feel a joy during the scary scenes, during the exciting scenes. And I think that goes to show that it's it's a complex emotional experience. Sometimes the, the emotional experience maybe doesn't fit so well 
So, for example, uh, when I went to see Titanic with my wife, she she burst out laughing at the end when Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio is is dying, yeah, and to, she thought it was to the dismay of the people around you guys yes. in the theater, including your parents. Yes, my parents were there too, and they were they were not happy. And you know, it's it's the typical mother in law daughter relationship. That was a that was an awkward moment. Um, but I have to say, I, I understood because Cameron. Uh, James Cameron was treating that climax the same way he treated Terminator 2 and, you know, these other things. It was just nonstop emotion. And there are times when you just are confronted with that complex deluge of emotions. There's nothing to do but laugh. But your wife was particularly tickled by the, the way they were talking because they were so cold and it reminded her of yo adrian yeah <laughs> and she actually called out to me quiet enough so she didn't disturb other people she just yo adrian because i think it was rocky three or something like that where he's in siberia and she comes to him it's like yo adrian um yeah, and just, she said she just wanted to imagine Sylvester Stallone, you know, freezing the North Atlantic. I, don't, I hope that doesn't say that we're very dark in our humor, but uh, I mean, it's just it's it's the emotional experience that came to her in that moment. I had a similar experience in the movie Nell. Mm. Jodie Foster is testifying at the end of the movie, and and she in in real life she should be so damaged from the experience she had that she's incapable of any form of communication. But in the movie, they're almost treating her as a as an alien intelligence, and they're translating what she's saying. And I just found the whole thing so ridiculous <laughs> that I started to crack up. And in a theater where you know people are crying because they're so touched by it, and so I know what that that feels like. It, <laughs> it you know reminded me of uh, the Seinfeld episode also, where uh, he gets in trouble for making out during the <laughs> right. There's a lot in Seinfeld that that came up during during my reading of the book in that jokes are not what's really funny. It's relationships. You, you talk about Provine in the book and his research, mm -hmm. Robert Provine. And I think in his book, he talks about that the, the, the key to the, a lot of humor is the relationships we have with people rather than you know, a, a witty punchline to a disconnected joke. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that point is, is valid that, yeah, humor is social. Laughter is social. If someone near us laughs, we are far more likely to laugh too, which is why they have things like laugh tracks. Um, the thing is, I, I think it's hard to define what is humor and what causes laughter. And that's because it's really a psychological process. It's, it's the dealing of conflict. Sometimes that's a conflict of emotions and sometimes it's a conflict of thoughts. And that conflict can occur solely within the person, but it can occur between people too. Which is why when we meet somebody for the first time, a lot of times we laugh during an introduction, even though there's been no joke. Mm -hmm. And it's because both people are, are kind of working through this this greeting process and it leads to uh, some mixed feelings. Just, you know, and, and it probably goes all the way back to our ape ancestors who do the same thing. They bare teeth when they greet each other. Um, they do behaviors that are very similar to laughter during these awkward social moments. There's anxiety an, and that needs to be alleviated. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so that's why you see laughter in so many social situations. Yeah. The thing I was thinking of specifically with Seinfeld is like, you know, Kramer walks into the apartment and you laugh. No one has said anything. It's there's there's no joke. There's no setup. There's no punchline. It's and and if if it was the first time you saw him, you might not laugh. But once you've established a relationship with the character then the humor is there whenever you see him because he's so bizarre. Absolutely. And I think slapstick really 
requires that connection with the person because you've got to understand what they're going through as they're, I don't know, you know, going, running abruptly through a door, being hit by a car. If you're talking Johnny Knoxville kind of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've got to understand what the person is going through. I, um, I was on a flight, an international flight, uh, coming back from the Middle East and I was way in the back of the plane and there were, there had to be people speaking six different languages and there were various movies being shown, but one of them was Mr. Bean and everybody was laughing at Mr. Bean. Didn't matter what language they spoke because there is no language. It's all slapstick physical comedy. And that got everybody. It was great. I was looking around. And said, all these people can't communicate with each other are communicating this way. Yeah. Um, Rowan Atkinson is, is hilarious and, you know, he's Mr. Bean. And there have actually been studies that have looked at Mr. Bean comedy and they've, uh, they've examined people's brain responses as watching him do his very physical humor. And then other bits where he's, he's also doing, the same kind of mannerisms, but not in the humorous way. And you can actually see the humor being processed in the brain. Um, there's, there's a region of the brain called the anterior cingulate, kind of inside, inside the outer surface. And it's where we deal with conflict. And you can see this area light up and you can also see the pleasure centers light up too. As Mr. Bean is struggling to paint his walls using explosives and a can of paint or, you know, whatever the, whatever the bit is. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. I, I love his humor. You you very helpfully, in the introduction to the book, uh, helpfully to somebody like me who's going to talk to you about it, discuss exactly what the layout of the book is. So why don't we go through that? You've, you've covered a little bit of that already. So why don't we go through the three major sections of the book, and those are what is humor, what's it for, and then so what. And I should, let's before we even do that, I want to quote you from, I think it's the the last chapter of the book, you have a quote in there at the very beginning of the last chapter that reading a funny book, something like this, reading a funny book is a lot funnier, a lot funnier than reading a book about what's funny. <laughs> so nobody who's listening should necessarily expect this to be hilarious. It's it's real science here, and it, there might be some laughs coming up. We can't predict that, but. Uh, this is this is serious business. So, what is humor? What's it for? And so what? Uh, sure, I just have to share one of my favorite lines. It's from uh, Victor Raskin, who's the editor of Humor, the academic journal that studies this. And he said, uh, "Schizophrenia researchers don't try and be delusional when describing that condition. So, why should humor researchers try to be funny?" Um, and I think it's really good, and it's an entertaining quote. So, yes, I did. It's not a joke book. I don't want to tell jokes. I'm not a comedian. I'm a scientist. Well, there are a lot of jokes in the book. <laughs> there are, but I mean, they you, all you serve a purpose. The, you have the penguin joke and the polar bear joke. Yes, so yes. Peng, penguins are funny. That's what the study showed. Penguins are funny. I knew that before. Um, yes, but I think, I mean, just fortunately – Understanding and exploring humor is just entertaining. It's fun. So I don't think you need to tell jokes. Now, there are plenty of jokes I like to analyze and understand, um, but not for the sake of telling jokes, but for understanding them and, and just the engagement and fun of, of exploring humor. And there's a lot of benefits to it, too, um, to get to your question of what is humor and, and why. Um, yeah, humor, is, as I said, is, is really a form of conflict. And it, it's I like to think of it as mental exercise, that – just as the body needs to be worked to grow stronger, so does the mind need to be worked to to be more efficient, to be stronger itself. And so 
I think that's why we see the benefits of humor that we do. It, it improves cardiovascular uh, health. It's kind of equivalent to jogging, studies have shown. You get the same kind of calorie burn uh, and heart health. It improves immune system response and it even makes you smarter. Um, studies have shown that simply watching Robin Williams stand up improves your ability to solve insight problems and other general problem-solving ability tasks. So I, I think that's because humor is a form of exercise and we need to work our, our minds and humor is a very good way to do it. Because you make connections in your brain with a lot of humor. And that's the, the, the aha moment or the moment that makes you laugh is when you see something usually unexpected. You make the connection. There's dopamine released. You get all this physiological response. Yes, absolutely. That's basically how humor starts is you set up an expectation and then that expectation is violated somehow. And that's two very important ingredients and you can't have one without the other. So you can't merely hide behind a door and just scream to scare someone. That might be a kind of funny in, in a way, but it's not really humor. Um, what's funny is if you set up an expectation and then you take someone somewhere new. So, I mean, I'm thinking of the Stephen Colbert quote during the 2008 elections where he's he's saying, uh, if I'm reading this polling data correctly, I'd be very surprised. Right. And, you know, you set up an expectation with the first half of that line that he's going to make some prescient, you know, cutting remark. And, um, of course, you have to have Stephen Colbert deliver the line. I could never deliver it like him. But you set up an expectation in the first half of that sentence, and then it just goes a completely different direction. And delivery is really interesting because it's both timing and the relationship you have with this individual. I mean, if you've seen, if you never saw Colbert before, it might not be the same, but you've, you've been watching him every night for years. So you do have this pre-existing relationship with him. So when he says something like that, there's both this kind of release and, it, and the recognition, oh, he did it to me again. And if there's one person that's the master of that, it has to be Stephen Colbert because yeah. he's made a whole living off of setting up an expectation of a persona right. that you get you think he's going to make this remark and then he just turns it completely around and then goes a different direction. And it's kind of hard to get a grasp on who that persona really is. Yeah. There's a, there are a couple of stand up comedians who their whole act is basically, they give you a setup to, it's not jokes, but they give you a setup to some kind of a, an experience they're recounting. And then at the last second it turns so that it's not what you expected. Like, uh, I think Wendy Liebman or Lieberman, I forget if, which is her real last name, and um, Anthony Jeselnik mm -hmm. goes in this really dark direction a lot of the time. So uh, that that unexpected uh, finish is really crucial for them. I love the fact that Jeselnik terms this show the Jeselnik Offensive. Right. Because <laughs> you get so much information in that title. And I also think of Sarah Silverman as yeah. the master of that because she comes across as this, this gentle ingenue who's just, you don't, you can't expect to say anything. Right. She's You're so sweet. Cool. She's so sweet. And then the vial that comes from that woman's <laughs> mouth, it just, it makes, it makes me cringe. And, yeah. and I've, I've spent significant time at sea. I, my <laughs> wife calls me, you know, says I have sailor mouth and I watch Sarah Silverman and I sometimes feel dirty, but that's that's how that's how she's done so well. Is she set up an expectation and it just completely turns it around? Yeah. So so have we answered the question? What is humor? I mean, we can't really. <laughs> I mean, there's an ineffable quality to it as well. There is, and that's why I like to look at it as it's a process. It's not something that you can look at and define by jokes or a formula. I mean, if, if there were a formula for humor, it would have been invented two thousand years ago. 
Um, it, it really requires an exploration of psychology. And I think humor is as, as human as intelligence and language and these other things that really kind of define who we are as complex beings. And that's why it can't be put down into a simple sentence of this is humor. Yeah. When you understand humor, you'll understand people. You know, you mentioned Henny Youngman early in the book as somebody who just told jokes rather than had this uh, – what we would think today is real humor. He was a joke teller. But, you know, I saw him live once back in the 70s. He didn't get laughs like the first two or three jokes. And then he got a laugh, and then it was all over. And I realized it wasn't the jokes. It, it, even with Henny Youngman, it was him, his delivery, and your pre-existing relationship with the guy. Once he got you, then the jokes came so fast. You've heard all these jokes before, but he told them so fast, you didn't have time to remember them. So the punchline surprised you again. And and just him up there, he looked funny. He had the violin that he would play a few uh, few notes between jokes. And the whole thing was funny. It wasn't, the jokes were just sort of a way to to get you into the whole experience of being with him. Absolutely. And I think in some ways that humor is not as common now as it used to be, partly as a sign of the time. But that's a similar formula used by Stephen Wright, who's yeah. got the very slow delivery. And if you hear one of his jokes in isolation, it doesn't connect as well. I mean, he has a, a great joke about um, people trapped on the escalator at the mall when it shuts down. Mm -hmm. And by itself, it doesn't it doesn't connect as well. But when you 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 follow the full stand-up process of him. You you get what he's doing. And it takes a level of commitment that is it's impressive. And it also shows how humor is so different that no com two comedians are the same. Uh, it's because they're all exploring this way of dealing with you know, social interaction in a different way. Yeah. In fact, if a comedian is the same, he's a bad comedian. Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, we would never heard of him or her. Right, yes. right. Um, so what's it for? What From an evolutionary perspective, I mean, you did mention the uh, the great apes bearing their teeth. Evolutionarily, we even see laughter in in other mammals that are nowhere near primates, like like uh, rats. Yes, I mean, we some have argued that we're the only species that enjoys humor, but we are not the only species who laughs. Um, I. I interviewed a researcher, Jeffrey Bergdorf, who that's what he does. Is he tickles rats for a living. Um, and at first it, seems, <laughs> it, might seem, it might seem like a trivial exercise. You know, why would one tickle rats? But it's very important research because if you understand what makes a rat laugh and what gives joy to a rat, that's another step to understanding the same processes in humans. And he, he studies this to see uh, and explore treatments for depression, which is very important. Um, but when it comes to humor and purposes, I think it really comes down to humor being uh, closely linked with language intelligence. It really is what what makes us special as a species. And you can see this in some ways. It's always tricky exploring evolution. But you can see this in gender differences in humor. Uh, so, for example, when you ask women... This is a minefield you're about to get it into. It is. I always, I'm, I'm very careful with it. Um, because there's been a lot of people who say, you know, women can't tell jokes. Why are women less successful in comedy than men? Right. Um, and, and Christopher Hitchens famously said that oh, women aren't funny. Yeah. Jerry Lewis has been pilloried for this. And, you know, if I'm a 30 Rock addict... And if you watch 30 Rock, it's clear that Liz Lemon's one of the, uh, you know, uh, Tina Fey, 
one of the funniest people in the world. If not the funniest. Right. I, she, I just look at her, I just laugh because yeah. you know everything that she's going to do is funny. So clearly you can't generalize. I mean, this is, that's a ridiculous statement. But it, it comes to what are the genders looking for when it comes to humor? And the evolutionary story is that men evolved to be funny. And because what that, what that did is it showed a, a genetic fitness. If you're funny, there's, there's a strong link between humor and intelligence. Um, the correlation, when you, you look at this experimentally, the correlation between sense of humor and intelligence is almost as, as close as intelligence tests have relationships among themselves. Um, and so if, if you're a woman who's looking for a, a male who's a suitable mate who will pass on good genes, sense of humor is a good thing to look for. It's a it marker shows, for intelligence. Just it's as a marker. other <laughs> animals might look at uh, how healthy the fur is on a perspective made to see if they're carrying parasites. Yes, yes. So, I mean, you look for these clues, like, is this is this a good person that I really want to commit to in so many different ways? Um, and that leads to an opposite, I don't know if it's opposite, opposite prediction, but a different prediction, that men should be looking for women who think they're funny. Mm. And so it, it might be that men are just raised because we're, we're looking for women who just think they're funny, whether they are or not. And so... Uh, Studies have shown women laugh more than men. So you can't say that women are less humorous than men. They laugh far more than men. They enjoy humor more, um, up to 25% more. And there have been studies where people actually went out and spent a year just eavesdropping in coffee shops and subways and measured, you know, just with notepad and pencil, measured the number of times people were laughing and what, what sex they were and what sex of the person they were speaking to was. And women talking to women, they laughed twice as much as a man talking to a man. Uh, so women do enjoy humor. They're very humorous. They're, they're, they're funny. Um, it just might be that from a, <laughs> who knows if you believe the evolutionary story, but from an evolutionary story, we, we've created a society where we, we want our men to be funny. And that might be changing. It, yes, very likely. And, and it, we see that in, in tests in personality tests where you ask people, what are you looking for? Um, 20 or 30 years ago, if you asked, um, People, what are, they, what are you looking for in a mate? Humor was high, but it wasn't at the top. It was, you know, number eight, number seven. Now it's number one or number two for everybody. And number one or number two for women. They, if you ask them what the number one thing they're looking for a partner is, it's, it's humor. Um, for men, often, uh, intelli often intelligence and looks come slightly higher. Um, and it's a cultural thing too. If you look at the same preferences in a place like Siberia, and people have actually done this, sense of humor is like I think nineteenth or twentieth on the list. Because we gotta survive. <laughs> we gotta survive. I've, I've been to Siberia. I don't want to sound like you know I've gone to these strange places, but I've spent the, I've spent some time in Siberia in, in my previous careers, and it's true. It's snowy there all the time, and um, they it's just it's a fact they they drink a little bit more than we do here. Um, and so finding a reliable mate there is, is pretty darn important. Um, so the last question, the last part of the book deals with the question, so what? What do you even mean by so what? So, well, I would hope that if you, if we study humor and we want, and I think we should study humor. Humor is a very important topic. Why is it important? You've got to ask that. Why do we want to understand humor? And that's because it, it really has so many practical implications for our lives. Humor is not taken seriously, necessarily. I mean, it's hard to get research funding for Just humor. Just look at who wins Academy Awards. The, the, a comedy, when was the last time a comedy won Best Picture? 1973. If you No, ni 1993? What, what year was Annie Hall? 
if you want to call Annie Hall a comedy. Oh, I think that way was, before the nineties. That's, that's the, the closest. 70s, yeah. yeah, unless you want to call Forrest Gump a comedy, I don't know if you can. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't happen. I right. mean, but you look at I guess was it nineteen. Uh, I, I, 2005, maybe. I need to look up the date. But when The Hangover came out, that was the year that nine, they, they increased the number of nominations for the Academy Awards. Uh, Hangover was the number one adult comedy of all time. Right. Um, it just, it was, in, in terms of box office, it killed. And I personally think a very funny movie. Yeah. Not even nominated. Nobody even thought it would be nominated. Right. And the next year, Bridesmaids came out. Melissa McCarthy. Right. Melissa oh, McCarthy she's, was she's amazing. Melissa McCarthy was up for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. And I read a few news articles saying, should she be nominated? Right. And I remember thinking, how how could they ask that question? Right. It was like, I challenge any other actress, and I, I mean any other actress, to give a soliloquy about falling off a cruise ship and having a conversation with a dolphin in the ocean and making it believable. Yeah. And she she did that. It was it was great. So. When turning back to why is it important, uh, we, we should take it seriously because it has immense implications for our health. Um, it improves it improves our heart health, improves immune system function. It's good cardiovascular exercise. It makes us smarter. Um, and the, the list is almost too long to just list the benefits we get from humor. And that's not even including the psychological benefits of just enjoying a, a, a happier, more positive life. And not been, to mention... The ability to be among other people and enjoy each other's company. Yes, it's a social exercise and someone who has a good sense of humor and not just being able to tell a good joke, but just enjoy humor and make it part of their lives. You don't need to be able to tell a good joke and and be a humorous person and enjoy it. And there's just so many benefits to just seeking out humor and sharing it with others that uh, it, it just makes our lives richer. Now, toward the end of the book, you talk about you decided to really, you know, be a conscientious researcher and go do stand-up. <laughs> yes, I did. I did that for the book. I don't want to give any pretensions like I, ha- I am an aspiring comedian. I'm, I'm very happy with the lot I chose in life. And that's really good because I, I just bombed. It was terrible. I feel bad for every person in that audience. You should have bombed. Why, I should why have. would you expect not to bomb? And I, I had yeah. friends say, you need to take an improv yeah. class. You need to take classes. I said, no, that's, that's not the point. I'm, yeah. I'm taking a hit for the team right. because if a humor researcher wants to be funny, then that, that's a problem. The, the point is to understand it. So that said, I mean, yes, I did not do great in the stand-up performance. I got an immense amount from it because I immersed myself in humor. I, I watched a lot of comedy shows, and, and I, I just – I think I enjoy humor more than before I, I wrote the book. And you talk about – you did have a couple of moments while you did stand-up, just moments. It reminds me of, you know, when I play golf. I'm going to have one or two moments during my round that are rewarding. And you had this same kind of experience doing the stand-up. Yes, I also played golf, and it was the exact same sensation when you hit a good drive. Uh, yeah, and uh, Michaeli Csikszentmihalyi, it's a challenging name, but he's a psychologist, and he termed it flow. And it's called flow because this is a, this, these are times when you're in the moment. You, you're living only for... That specific moment and you're, you're getting all the emotional and cognitive richness you can from it. And yes, those moments were brief, but I did enjoy them during the performance. And they were moments when I was connecting with the audience and connecting with myself. And they were the moments when I was really just being myself, I suppose. Um, and you got laughs where you never expected to get laughs. I did. I did. And I, I learned that it was just those were the moments when, uh, well, I, I shared what was termed, but science has shown to be the funniest joke in the world. Right. That got a lot of laughs. 
Um, and I got laughs in other parts that I thought were were less edgy parts of my routine. But we they should say that's research by this fellow Wiseman in, Richard in Wiseman. England, and uh, he did this many year long study where they they tried to understand humor by seeking out what the funniest jokes were, which in some ways is a doomed enterprise because, as Provine talks about, jokes themselves are, you know, they're at the low end of the humor spectrum. It, it it's deeper connections and relationships that are really crucial. Right. And so if you're doing an online test of the funniest joke in the world, uh, and this is this is Wiseman's claim, not just mine, but I mean, you're kind of setting yourself up for mediocrity in some way, because no matter what, you're not going to get those jokes that really cut. Right. You don't have a person delivering them. You don't know who's sharing it. Um, and frankly, everybody's got a different threshold for what they find is funny. So if you average this over hundreds of thousands of people as he did, then you're not going to get those ones that are just on the cusp. Um, but the, so going back to my standup, yeah, there were, there were moments that I really felt connected and they were those moments I kind of felt I was making a connection. I wasn't trying to tell jokes, but as much as just talk and share. And this is, I mean, if you look at the funniest comedians out there, I am not comparing myself to Louis CK, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's what he does is he connects with his audience and you feel like you have a relationship with, with him at the end of his show. And I think these are these are the moments these are the moments you remember in life. Yeah, I mean, there's a uh, the Mel Brooks movie, um, History of the World, Part mm -hmm. One, where he's he talks about himself being a stand-up philosopher, and that's what stand-ups really are now. They they don't tell jokes. They they look at life, and that's what they're sharing with you. And that's what Louis C.K. does mm -hmm. so great. You know, it's. It, no one else could do his material. <laughs> no one else. No, and I, that's also why I, in in my book I start with talking about Lenny Bruce because Lenny Bruce was one of the first people to, to do that in the 50s. And in the 50s, things like drug use and gender roles, these were these were cutting-edge topics. And he he almost didn't tell jokes. He One, you know, in his famous Carnegie Hall performance, he told one joke and he warned people, hey, I'm going to try and tell a joke. Um, but the rest that, of it was that the one where he went on for almost 20 minutes. It was a 25 minute joke that could have been told in five seconds. Right. And, uh, and there's no way I could repeat it, but, uh, cause it was a very Lenny Bruce kind of joke. Um, but he, instead what he did is he connected with his audience. He talked about things that were on his mind and you got the sense that it was unrehearsed. I'm sure it was rehearsed in the sense that he had given these various quips many times before, but you felt like you were in a conversation. So, why did you want to write this book? Well, I've always loved humor. I mean, humor has been part of my life you know, since I was a child. And I think we all love humor. Uh, I really got the interest in humor as I was studying other topics. Um, when I was in graduate school, which was sadly quite a few years ago, um, it wasn't something I, an academic could make a living studying. I mean, it's hard enough to get grant money in topics that people take seriously. And this was neuroscience. This was neuroscience, Yes. Um, yes, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. And so, you know, I study the psychology of, of cognition, of thinking from a brain-based perspective. And there, there have been people that have looked at this for 10, 20 years or more, but not frequently and not as a sole occupation. It's really only become a topic of research interest in maybe the past five or 10 years. And, you know, it's hard to draw the exact line. But now people are studying humor because we recognize, for example, uh, Jeffrey Bergdorf, the rat tickler. He tickles rats and, and he looks at their uh, their responses and also their emotional responses by looking at their brains. And you can learn a lot about things like depression, anxiety, these issues that have immense implications 
for, for us as humans. Um, and I think we're now recognizing that humor, if we understand humor, we'll understand ourselves better. Not just, uh, not just things like depression and anxiety, but just how we think. Computers can't tell jokes yet. And there's a reason they can't tell good jokes yet. And it's because to tell a good joke, you've got to have some pretty advanced cognitive thinking. And when we understand how people tell jokes, you'll understand how people think. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out the collection of Scientific American ebooks, including The Secrets of Consciousness. They're all at books.scientificamerican.com slash SA hyphen ebooks. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>